They speak to us all in many different ways. They give voice to the pain that we experience, the struggle. Sometimes they give us words to say that we don't even know that we need to be saying as we're reading through them. Uh, they also tell us about God and His character and what He is really like. Not the, not the image of God that we have in ourselves, but the image of God who He is and is revealed in His Scriptures. And so as we read through these, as we meditate upon them, we gain a greater understanding of His character and of His goodness. In this section of the Psalms, Psalm 120, verse 135, are called Songs of Ascent. Now, there are different viewpoints on what that actually meant, what that phrase means. You might even have that right there in your, in your text. Uh, but the main uh, conclusion as to what a song of ascent is, is one that was likely sung as people were journeying back to Jerusalem. You see uh, that the people of God were called back to, to Jerusalem for different festivals or different seasons or celebrations, uh, feasts such as the Passover or Pentecost or the Feast of Booths. And they would travel up to Jerusalem because, you see, Jerusalem was a city on a hill. And as they journeyed, they would sing these songs. They would play them in their minds as they, as they went along the way. Uh, they were part of the journey of the faithful as they eagerly anticipated what was to come as they celebrated what God had done and was doing in their lives. These psalms are also called a discipleship psalms because they encourage us in our journey of faith. You know, the life of a disciple, it's not a, it's not a one-time event. It's not a one-time decision that you made in your past. Just as there is much more to marriage than a wedding, and there is much more to parenting than a birth, uh, the Christian life, as uh, Pastor Eugene Peterson says, is a long obedience in the same direction. The Christian life is a long obedience in the same direction. Listen to what he has to say. It is not difficult in such a world to get a person interested in the message of the gospel. It is terrifically difficult to sustain the interest. Millions of people in our culture make decisions for Christ, but there is a dreadful attrition rate. Many claim to have been born again, but the evidence for mature Christian discipleship is slim. In our kind of culture, anything, even news about God, can be sold if it is packaged freshly. But when it loses its novelty, it goes on the garbage heap. There is a great market for religious experience in our world. There is little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue. Little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what earlier generations of Christians called holiness. This is a psalm that helps us as we face the struggle of that journey of a life called discipleship. It's interesting to note that Eugene Peterson got the title of his book, uh, which began a long obedience in the same direction. He got that phrase from a man who was noted for his disbelief in God. Friedrich Nietzsche, the one who also said, God is dead, is the one that coined the phrase, a long obedience in the same direction. What irony then, that Eugene Peterson would see this statement from a man who did not believe in God as a way of viewing the Christian life. I invite you, if you're able, to stand with me for the reading of God's Word, Psalm 121. I lift my eyes up to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. 
Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Father, we thank you for the word that you've given to us this morning. We pray, God, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, do the work of transformation in our lives to see more of you and less of ourselves. Help us to find ourselves in you. Allow us to hear your call, even as we call out to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, danger is a part of the life of a disciple. Anyone who knows Anyone who follows Jesus knows this reality is true. There will be difficulties. There will be struggles. Suffering is part of the walk of faith. You know, if you stand up for your faith, you can be ostracized, ignored, uh, even persecuted. But there is a greater danger that lurks. And that's the real possibility that we, that you and I, are so familiar with the word Jesus that you think you actually know him when in reality, you don't. All you know is your version of who you think Jesus is. A version that actually looks a lot more like you than the one that appears in the pages of Scripture. In the text, we see that the disciple is looking up to the hills, looking for help from the Lord. It's it's certain that there would be a sense of expectation and excitement about this journey back to Jerusalem. For in Jerusalem, there was going to be a great party, a great celebration, a great remembrance of what God had done. But it's likely that there would be some anxiety uh, as well. As the disciples journeyed through the unprotected hillside, it's probable that thieves or that bandits, certainly knowing when these festivals and, and events took place, would hide, lay in wait, ready to ambush, a pilgrim, ready to take them over. And so while on the one hand there's a sense of excitement about the journey that's being taken, there's also this anxiety that's produced because of the difficult struggle that could be laying in wait. The psalmist writes that his help is from the Lord, the one who made the heaven and the earth. In the first two verses, we see the viewpoint of the psalmist, the one who has probably traveled this road before knowing that dangers lurk, knowing that life is difficult, and yet also knowing that their help comes from the Lord. It's to the Lord that they can turn in time of difficulty and challenge. Many of you have been following the Lord for a long time, and you know what I'm talking about. You know that life is full of disappointment. It's full of discouragement, moments of of defeat. Uh, There is doubt. There is difficulty. There is great frustration. There is great sadness. Times when the people around you just don't seem to really understand. And so the question becomes, to whom or to what are we looking for our help? You know, all too often we look to something else besides the Lord when we're facing difficulty. You know, maybe you think that just changing your circumstances is the best solution to your problem. You're unhappy in your current situation. If only you could get a, a, a different job or another house, or somehow if you could upgrade your family a notch or two, then that would be the thing that you would like most. I went to a marriage retreat uh, a month or so ago, and there was a, a, 
the preacher, the pastor, Paul Tripp, said something that really stuck with me. He said, uh, in, he was speaking about marriage. Uh, he said, your biggest problem in your marriage is you. I mean, that's not to say that your spouse doesn't have issues, but he said that the main issue is your own sin that you need to deal with. And when you start there, then you can have a great marriage. And I think that applies to more than just marriage. It applies to our families. It applies to our jobs, to our city, uh, to the body that we have. Our greatest problem is ourselves and how we understand who we are. See, if we look to our family or our job or anything else for fulfillment and for joy, uh, those things always end up disappointing us. They always end up disappointing us. And the psalmist is calling us to look to the Lord for our help. The maker of heaven and earth. He is the one who created you. He knows what you're like. He, he, he fashioned you just exactly the way He wants you to be. And He puts you where He wants you to be. If He is sovereign, if He has made the heavens and earth, and certainly He is sovereign over you, He knows your struggle and He knows your pain. He knows the difficulty that you're facing right now in this moment. For He made the heavens and the earth. He does not slumber nor sleep. He's not sleeping on the job. The psalmist calls us to look to the one who is the creator. Don't look to something else. Don't look to anything else. The reason the psalmist looks at, calls us to look to the help for the Lord because he says, look at this verse, he says, he who keeps you will not slumber. Notice when I read through that, did you notice the word keep or keeper appears six different times in the, in the latter part of the text? Six different times. He says he keeps you. He keeps Israel. The Lord is your keeper. He keeps you from evil. He keeps your life. The Lord keeps your going out and your coming in. That's probably an important word for us when we think about this psalm, right? What does it mean to have a keeper? What is a keeper? The keeper is a, a translation of a Hebrew word that means a number of different things. It represents a variety of offices and different responsibilities in the Israelite uh, society. One of the main definitions is that of a guard or a watchman over agricultural matters. So a shepherd is a keeper of the sheep, right? What's the shepherd's job? It's not just to get them to good grass, but to protect them from, from bears and lions or whatever else might seek to attack the sheep. Someone who protects the harvest of the field, uh, the vineyard or the orchard. Having a watchman was vital to the welfare of the community because an entire year's produce could be stolen or destroyed by an enemy. Remember when we studied Ruth, that the threshing floor where Ruth and Boaz met, the men were there to protect and to care for the crop. Boaz, the one who was in charge, he was there to protect it. The owner of a field and his family or servants would often even build a booth or a, a temporary shelter and spend the entire harvest there to protect those crops from people who would come and steal them. And this is one of the customs that even led to one of those celebrations called the Feast of Booths that people would go to Jerusalem where they would put these temporary shelters in the city. It was that significant in the life of the community. With little or no security out there, they had to have a watchman, someone who would be guarding and protecting. Uh, we see in the Bible this term also even means a person caring for their own body. You, you probably also remember that in Genesis chapter 4, uh, Cain says about Abel, am I my brother's keeper? We see this in Psalm 121 as the Lord is the one who protects His people. It also 
can mean a person that was in the temple, an official, the, the keeper of the threshold, who was in charge of all of the financial resources of the treasury, the various chambers of the sanctuary, as well as getting up and opening it every single morning, the person that was there to watch over and to guard the holy and sacred space of the Lord, to ensure that the worship was done in a proper manner. The word also means a prison guard or a warden or someplace, a palace official, including the ranger in charge of the royal forests and the chamberlain responsible for the king's robes, as well as military personnel. There's a lot of different definitions of this word, keeper. It's a very important role. And as you, as you explore this, this term, and as you think about this, we realize that the people of God, when they heard the word keeper, that the Lord is your keeper, that would mean many things to them. They would find great hope and great satisfaction in life in knowing that the Lord God, the one who made the heavens and the earth, who is in charge of everything, the sovereign over all creation, that God was keeping them. And you notice at the end of the verses, it says, the Lord is your keeper. He is your shade on your right hand. He will keep you. It's very personal. It's not just that the Lord in general is a keeper, even though He is. Yes, he does protect his nation, his people, the nation of Israel. It says, the keeper of Israel does not slumber nor sleep. But this Lord who keeps all of these things is your keeper. This Lord is your Lord. The one who cares about you and the struggles that you are facing. This Lord is a protector. He is never sleeping. He is always on the lookout. He is protecting. He is preserving. He is caring for his people. But notice this. The one who is on the discipleship journey, the one who is on their way to Jerusalem to celebrate with God, that is the one who is receiving the protection and the care and the love of God. This intimacy, this guidance. We don't really know if the one who is waiting at home is receiving the same kind of care. The one who is not following. The one who is not growing. The one who is not pursuing the one who is not moving toward God. We don't know. It doesn't say if that person is receiving this kind of favor from God. If it seems that God is asleep in your life, is it possible because you have not moved toward Him? Now let me say this. God is the one who initiates relationship with us. But it's possible that you have ceased in your pursuit of God. Maybe you've become enraptured with the things of this world. Or maybe you have just gotten lazy in your faith. The difficulties of this life has worn you down to the point that you're just going through the motions. Or maybe it's just that the God that you know doesn't really have any power to deal with your problems. But if that's the case, then, then the God that you know is not the God of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible is the Almighty, the Great Keeper, the One who stands on guard for our behalf, who created the heavens and the earth. And we need to know and pursue that God, that Keeper. You see, the one who experiences active work in their lives are the ones who are journeying toward Him. Do we, do we live with an expectancy that God can meet us in our struggle? That God will help us in our pain? Do we really believe that God can do something in our lives? Do we trust that God is with us in the struggle? Are we willing to take a risk for God's sake, knowing that He'll provide the way? 
And I love the story in Matthew 25. It's the parable of the talents. And, and this uh, master gives certain denominations of money to his slaves before he leaves on a journey. And to one he gives ten talents. And that, that, that slave uh, takes those ten talents and he makes ten more. And the master, when the master returns, he says, uh, Well done, you good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in little, so I will give you much. And the other servant has five and he makes it into another five. But one of the servants gets one talent. And that was a unit of measure. But it's also appropriate for us because each of us have been given talents, correct? He takes that talent because he was afraid. He buries it in the ground. And when the master returns, he says, here's your talent back. And the master doesn't just say, well, gosh, you know, you really could have done a better job of this. I was hoping that you would at least put it in the bank and get interest. He says, you wicked and lazy servant. You wicked and lazy servant. I have given you this talent. I've given you something to use for my sake and my glory and you're so scared to live faithfully for me that you buried it in the ground and you did nothing with it. What a powerful text for those of us who have God-given talent. Those of us in this room, those of us who can hear my voice, every single one of us has been given something by God that we can do for His glory and for His sake. And are we using that talent to bring glory and fame to Him? You see, we know that Jesus was victorious on the cross, but very few of us live a victorious Christian life. But the psalmist writes that we have a God who is with us. The sun will not strike us by day, nor the moon by night. It, it could mean, yes, that, the, that God is protecting the traveler from the heat of the sun, but it's more likely to mean that there's nothing that can happen in a 24-hour period, day or night, that can affect the relationship that the traveler, the pilgrim, the follower, the disciple has with the living God. He will always be with us. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. William Edwards was a British uh, magistrate caught uh, in the rebellion of India in 1857. His escape after hiding out for months is a thrilling story. He wrote at one point, Nothing new has been settled about our plans, and we are much harassed. Heavy guns were firing at Truckabad today. We know not for what cause, but they reminded us painfully of our fearful proximity to that place where so many are thirsting for our lives. Amidst it all, the Psalms are the most consoling and wonderfully suited to our cause, especially the 121st. I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills, from whence cometh our help. Maybe it feels as though that you and right now are under attack. Or maybe there are people attacking one another around you and you feel like you're caught in the crossfire. But the Lord of heavens and earth is with you. He is the keeper. He is the watchman. And He loves it when His people respond to Him in faith. Which of us would be a disciple? There is a, a worldwide phenomenon that began uh, 10 or 15 years ago in, in China called a nail house. And... A nail house is, is a home, and China's uh, laws regarding personal property uh, began to change in the mid-90s, and people were actually allowed to own property, and a nail house is, is a home whose owner refuses to sell to developers. And if you go, if you go on uh, Google Images and you uh, type in nail house, you can see there's all this excavation going on around a piece of property, and there's this one huge, big piece of land with a house on it and you just wonder how in the world can that person actually get into this house it's such a stark thing that's sitting there and the refusal forces the develop 
they have to excavate all the way around the house and they and they're just like this stubborn um, rickety pedestal of earth with this broken down house on top of it in fact the recent movie Up was about such a house and it's crotchety defiant owner but in almost every instance the developer gets a court order to demolish the house so the nail house is an act of doomed resistance it's a gesture of hopeless defiance it's a desperate last attempt to resist the irresistible to to stop the unstoppable it's a lone fist shaken against a ruthless destroyer. The Bible is a book of nail houses. But unlike the nail houses of this world, it comes with a message of hope. It says, hold on. Don't give up. Keep going, no matter how hard it gets. Think about the Hebrew slaves in Egypt, or David and Goliath. But the ultimate nail house is the cross of Jesus Christ. That is history's most potent nail house, raised on a barren hillside in defiance of all the hellish despotism of the universe. And this time, the owner wins. But ironically, most of the time, we believe our greatest threat is not that we would face some earthly struggle, but the greatest threat that we would fail to see that there is a cosmic battle for our souls that is being waged in the heavenly realms. And often those difficulties that we face, the struggles, the pain, the challenge that you're facing right now in this very moment, we fail to see that those are opportunities for us to trust. They're opportunities for us to look to the Lord, the creator of the heavens and the earth for our hope and not to the things of this world. Would that we would be a nail house, defying our great enemy, standing in stark contrast to the barren landscape of lost souls who are looking to this world for hope. You know, it's so ironic to me that the man who said God is dead, it would be his words that would characterize a life on mission for the long term with Jesus. A long obedience in the same direction. A life spent serving and loving God and others in the midst of this struggle. He is alive through the words of the psalm as our keeper. God is not dead. He is alive through the words of the psalm as our keeper and our protector. He is alive in us as we are nail houses in this world. Visible reminders that there are few that stand against the powers of this world. He is alive in you as you go from this place to bear witness in Arkansas or wherever you go. Will you be that for Him? Because He has already been that for you. Will you pray with me?